<clears throat> Thanks everybody for uh, tuning into this lesson of the CMI School of Christ. Appreciate it very much. And uh, as we are, we've been doing for a while now. At the beginning of these classes, let me just remind you of the conferences coming up here in uh, Arkansas, up at the Research Bible Research Center. Um, it's in Leslie, Arkansas, and it's actually, let me just give you the address if you want to write that down and help you, uh, if Google will, <laughs> if Google will get you here. It's uh, 3740 Trace, T-R-A-C-E, Ridge, R-I-D-G-E, Road, 3740 Trace Ridge Road, Leslie, Arkansas, and it will be the 21st through the 25th of um, June. It's coming up in a couple of weeks, so time's really flying by. And uh, many people have already called and uh, made their uh, plans and told us that they were on coming. And so we're glad to hear that. And if, if you who um, haven't yet made those plans and you have the ability to be here during that time, uh, not maybe not the whole week, but just some portion of that week, we would love to have you. Um, unfortunately, um, I guess fortunately and unfortunately for those of you who may want it, the rooms up at the research center seem to be taken already. And, but there are some uh, B and, uh, not B and B, but Airbnbs that are available in the area. And um, uh, in Clinton, Arkansas, which is about 18, 19 miles uh, south of us, there's a, a, a Motel 6 and a Best Western, I do believe, um, that probably still have availability. So this is a small area, and there's things going on around here. There's a homecoming that's coming up in the little town of Leslie, and uh, there's people coming through here all the time because of the rivers and, and Branson's right up the road. So um, sometimes things can get crowded as far as places to stay because not because of the influx of people, but because more, more than likely it's because of the, uh, uh, lack of places and accommodations because of the, uh, size of the town. There's not many, um, places renting out rooms, but Airbnb seems to be a good place to find several options and and all of those as you if you've done an airbnb before some of those are better if you have a group because of like fees and things that they charge uh, with airbnb however we would love to have you if you need any help and we can help you um, as far as any um, questions you may have concerning it we will have meals prepared there will be a breakfast every morning starting on tuesday morning 22nd and the sessions will actually start tuesday morning monday night the 21st uh, we will have a, a meal and um, just a time of uh, fellowship and, and just allowing people to get in and relax and rest before the actual sessions begin so there will be meals provided, like I said, every, um, every morning there'll be breakfast and then every 
afternoon or a night. I'm not sure if it's going to, I think it's going to be before. Usually it's before the session begins at night, we have a meal and then, uh, lunch is kind of a catch as catch can, uh, you know, on your own type situation, but there are some good, uh, local restaurants that you can uh, go to, but that's, that's about it. It's, uh, the 21st of the 25th. And we'd love, as, as I said, love to have you guys, uh, be with us. So today, what I'm going to do is get back on these classes in Romans. Um, I'm not sure if this will be consistent because I'm kind of juggling a couple of different um, studies right now. But Romans chapter eight is where we've been for some time. And we are in Romans 831 is where we'll begin. And if you, um, this seems like an odd place and you didn't see the uh, previous um, lessons, then this may be good for you to uh, go back to at least the previous section. These are also available on the podcast, Satisfy God podcast. You can go there, satisfygod.com is where the podcast is found. And you can listen to those. There's also other uh, episodes that deal with Psalms 119, the Known of God series of classes that we've done years ago. I'm posting those as well. So there's a lot there on the podcast to listen to, uh, as well as there there is on the CMI uh, website and the YouTube channel. So let's read verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is God or Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Um, let me read this also. I have this in the Kenneth Wiest uh, Expanded New Testament. And he just words it a little differently. And, and there's some, there's an emphasis that he makes in this that I also uh, appreciate. What then shall we say to these things in view of the fact there's no if here, as far as a question of, of this, it is a fulfilled condition in many places where the word if in the King James is used in the, in the mind of English speakers, that's a question. If this be so, then this is so. In the Greek here, the word that is translated if many times depends on the condition. It there's In the Greek language, it can be a fulfilled condition if, meaning it would be better translation in view of the fact or since then God is, on, is for you. So Kenneth Wiest rightly translates it in view of the fact that God is on our behalf. Now, that's a weak translation as well, but I wanted you to understand in view of the fact God is for us. 
who could be against us? Indeed, he who his own son did not spare, but on behalf of us all delivered him up. How is it possible? Listen to the strength of this question. Just an absurd thought that he is trying to debunk. How is it possible that the God who did this did not spare his son, delivered him up on our behalf or for us? How is it possible that he shall not with him, that's with the son, in grace, give us all things? We'll focus on that a little later. This is a wonderful portion of this letter. All the letters, wonderful. But this portion specifically has been considered and, and uh, stated, written to be, in many of the opinions of theologians and scholars throughout the years. One of the most profound and clearest presentations of the security of the believer that can be found. And I, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. The, the statements here can seem to be so questionable and so conditional. Again, the word if, it becomes a big if, if we read it, understanding things with ourselves in view. Because we'll read this term like, if God be for us, who can be against us? And we've, we've perverted that verse in multiple different ways, and we'll, we'll address it. But to understand it in its proper context is to understand the certainty of these statements. Because he brings about, he prefaces it, or not prefaces it, he he, he lays an undergirding structure upon which these statements of certainty rests. And we're going to see that the structure upon which the whole thing rests is Christ himself. And it's God having done a work in Christ that is sufficient once and for all, and the bountiful blessings of grace that is bestowed to the believer based upon the certainty of a once and for all uh, work that God in Christ has accomplished for us. And that's the certainty of these statements, again, can be called into question and some shade of doubt can be cast on it when we do not understand these things properly meaning we falsely imagine ourselves, our actions, our activities to dictate and determine the statement, if God be for us, because then we can think, well, is he for me? Is he not for me? What, what, what makes him for me and what makes him not for me? And of course, performance is the first thing that always comes in our mind. So what does it mean for God to be for us? Well, in one way, we can look at the previous statements because this verse 31 actually refers us back 
to the previous statements. It doesn't just to the immediate previous statements, but to the whole of the letter, of course. But if you look at Romans chapter 8 in its total, totality, you'll understand that, that what he's laying forth here as a basis of saying these things, you know, who can bring a charge against the elect? Who, who can condemn? Who is it that condemneth? That refers you right back to the beginning of chapter eight. What we have is chapter eight. Again, these things were not written in chapter and verse, but what is isolated nowadays as chapter eight, the beginning of chapter eight starts off as there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this statement, who is it that brings a charge or could bring any condemnation to God's elect to those in Christ? And after that statement, he begins to show how absurd it is to think and consider that those who are in Christ have, are, are um, let's say it this way, not the people, but the condition of the soul of those who are in Christ is up for debate or question. That that soul can be susceptible and open to the condemnations and charge of others. Because God has brought us into a condition as those who are now partakers of the law of the spirit of life, that is the life of the spirit himself living in us as a law, but not a law that demands from us, but the law in its fulfillment, the life that the law demanded now present in the soul by the, by the presence and abiding of the Spirit of Christ, living in us as the righteousness of the law fulfilled. So what he says at the end of the verses we just read gives us the, the foundation, the structure, the basis upon which the man Paul can actually say the words there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ because it all comes and funnels down to this very reality. It is Christ that died. It is him rather that is risen. It is him that sits on the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. If we understand the certainty of those statements, the divine and eternal certainty and security that such statements solely and singularly defined in one man, dying, risen, glorified, sitting at the right hand of God, and now making intercession for us, standing in the presence of God for us, as Hebrews 9, 24 says, then we can understand that you can say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, rightly, because you'll see that those who are in Christ are not the ones who dictate their condition, but the one in whom they dwell and who dwells in them dictates that condition. He's the one that did it. He's the one that performed it. He's the one that sustains it because he's present in the soul. Those who believe, those who have come to him, and received him as their life, their righteousness, their holiness, their relationship with God, they are in a state of absolute security. And we're going to see that as we go. But to 
just take it to the previous statements in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, this is right after he says all things work together. And we've talked about that in the previous lesson. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And there are many who will take these words and they'll dispensationalize and these terms as far as the condition of the believer that you're first called then you're justified and one day you'll be glorified but what paul is writing here and we're going to read it in a commentary and he had to say it he doesn't agree with it but he had to say it because it's scripturally true he is Stating these realities as fulfilled, as past tense fulfillment, having a present ongoing, you know, uh, ramification in the soul, but yet true, present, calling, justification, and glorification. Now, of course, the glorification part we all think about in the future tense, but Let's talk about each one of these. Uh, he, called, he predestined. Um, the word predestined. And I've talked about this multiple times, that predestination has nothing to do with people. It has nothing to do with God selecting specific certain individuals or groups to be saved and then condemning others to be damned. Predestination has to do with the place. And I'm just going to use a simple term, the place, that has been afore determined by God. So God aforetime determined the place in which he would know, relate, save, justify all who would be found in that place. He chose a place, a sphere, a realm in which his salvation would be bestowed to those who would come. It was not that he chose people who would be in his son, but he chose the son as the place in whom he would know the people who would by faith come to him as he calls them. If they've been predestined now, he's called them. And <clears throat> when they come as the called, he justifies them. That's being saved, born again. So before the foundation of the world, the relation the place of relationship, the, the man in whom God would be found by us, God could be related to and would relate to us. That man, he determined that if he would have any relationship at all, it would be in that man, in that place. And he foreordained it. He predetermined it to be so. So those 
who are born of God have finally come to the place that was determined of God as the exclusive realm of his divine relation, his divine covenant and perfection and fulfillment. That's why he could say in him, you're complete. And that's another thing we have to understand. Um, that is why it is so significant that Paul uses the term in Christ so much in Christ, in the beloved, in him, in whom it's not filler. It's not just words. It's not just a phrase in every time he uses it in using that phrase in Christ and all of its different variations, he is actually presenting to us the fact that as those who are born of God by faith have come to believe and receive the grace of God bestowed, that at that moment, our souls came to the place. That is why the Weiss translation beautifully calls it the sphere in him, the sphere of Christ, the sphere of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of life and reality the locative sphere, because now when we're born again through the grace of God, we come, finally, the soul comes to be found in the place that God had predestined for the soul to be found. If he would relate to it, bestow upon it every spiritual gift. That's what in Christ really, that's the significance of that phrase, uh, actually being used. And even when Paul uses the phrase in Galatians, that God who, uh, separated me from my mother's womb. Again, we, we understand he's talking there about not his natural mother. He's talking about the mother of Judaism because he's going to go into chapter, uh, four and talk about the mother in an allegory being uh, Hagar, which is the mother of, uh, in, in type and shadow, the mother Hagar, mother of, of Ishmael, speaks of the uh, Judaizing church, the, the Jewish religion or being under the law. And Sarah, of course, speaks of the, uh, the, the, the promise and the, the seed and that, that reality. Now, he says he separated me from my mother's womb, calling me by his grace. And he did so to reveal his son in me. The word separated, you just think about being taken from something. And that's how most people believe what they think and consider about Christianity. Being born again is you being taken out of sin and taken out of Adam even. And and all of the ramifications, you know, all of the variations of that. But the word separated, if you look it up, it actually means to be brought into defined boundaries. It's not about being actually taken out of anything. Severed is one of the words translated. But if you look at the Greek definition, it actually means to be brought into defined boundaries. The grace of God that called him, yes, separated him from a previous thing 
a previous condition, a state of being, a previous religion. However, the true separation was that he brought him into defined perimeters within the walls of salvation that are perfectly and divinely ordered. And he brought him within that realm, that sphere, that location. Why? Because that was the place God had predetermined for the soul that would believe to be found. He had predetermined that was the place in which he would relate to the soul of man because he could not do so anywhere else. You even see that predetermination in giving the law. He clothed them with a testimony of the man in whom he would clothe them in a spiritual way so that he could deal with them, not kill them. He could deal with them, work with them until Christ came. Now it's not just him dealing with us and working with us. Now it's him living in us and being made unto us all things. That's the certainty of this. And that is something of God being for us because now the, the Christ in whom everything of reality, spiritual reality is found, is, is made unto us that profound spiritual reality. And so when he has predestinated us, then he calls us, called unto the fellowship of the Son, uh, the heavenly calling that Paul talks about. And once you receive that calling, you are justified. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's on the heels of him talking about man as no, not one, none righteous, no, not one. But the change comes when we receive him. Now justification, free justification by the grace of God, brings true redemption in Christ and bestows to us the righteousness that he is because in Romans 3, it says that this whole work of propitiation that Christ performed was the declaration of his being righteous and the righteousness or justifier of those who believe. So, Romans 5 goes on and talks about the free gift that is of many offenses, speaking of now being brought under the headship of Christ, being delivered from the headship of Adam. That free gift is unto justification. Justification. And uh, he goes on in Romans 18, 5, 18, and says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. There's the place in which condemnation existed and was not only a, a probability, but actually true as a present condition. Not, not, well, man can condemn me now. No, if you're not in the Son, Jesus says in, in John, the Gospel of John, if you're not in the Son or do not believe upon the Son, you're condemned already. It's not a condition that's, that's brought about because of man's uh, claims of fault or anything it is a condition that is uh bestowed you could say imputed not a good term in that in that but it is an internal condition you're born in 
because you do not have the son. Condemnation is there. You do not have the life. Condemnation is there. But so by the righteousness of one, in juxtaposition of the judgment and the offense of one, the righteousness of one came, the free gift came through that righteousness upon all unto justification of life. And we've talked about that before in those in these classes in Romans, that it's a justification that has to do with a particular life, meaning to be justified, you have to have this particular life given. So those who are justified, and I'm going to try to go through this quicker because there's a point I'm trying to make at the end here. Those who are justified now have been glorified. This is where the sticky point is with most, most Christians because glorification sounds as if it has to be something in the future because we have, you know, we've taken glorification and we've, we've added a lot of layers to it to where we think glorification has to do with some kind of a change in the body change in the aura <laughs> where we glow and where things happen. And these things have been taught. I'm not just speaking these things out of school. I've heard these things presented to have glorification where we can walk through walls, just like Jesus did. And we can do all these things. It's not what he's talking about. In fact, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this. And again, I don't know if they actually believe these things as their own personal eschatological theological conviction. However, they have to say it because they understand these things to be true according to context and scripture. So he says here that the word glorified means, always means, he says, internally, effectually, savingly called, denoting the first great step in personal salvation and answering to conversion. So that's the calling, internal, savingly, effectually. That's the calling to salvation, conversion, as he calls it. This calling expresses, he says, the divine authorship of the change, meaning this is done by God. He's the one that authors the calling. He, he's the source of it. And the sovereign power by which we are summoned out of the wretched perishing condition, that's death in Adam, into a new, safe, and blessed life. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what we've come to. Then he goes on and says, and whom he called and justified, he also glorified, brought to final glory, he says. Listen to that word, final glory. Final glory. The next phrase here is, what a noble climax and how rhythmically expressed. He understands that the word glorified speaks of a true climatic moment. It's as if the soul comes to that final climax for which God intended. But here is the problem. And I'm going to read more of this, but so is justification. So is justification because justification and glorification are not two separate dispensationally separated 
things. Justification and glorification happen simultaneously at the same moment. It's not a process to where you're now justified, then you got to get glorified. And we do that so often with Christian experience or salvation. Everything has its time frame. Everything is orderly arranged in a linear, uh, a linear timeline of achievement. You get this, then you get this, then you get this. It's like this trail that God sets before us with all these cookies or crumbs, and we grab each one of them. God is not fragmenting out salvation in that way. When he uses these terms, he's using them to truly define how absolutely great this predetermined salvation is because he's speaking to them as those who are in Christ, who have come to something complete. And he's just using these terms and isolating individual terms to describe their salvation in the most vivid of ways that they'll understand, man, this is everything. What we have in Christ, what we had the moment we partook of the life of the spirit and were now dead to, to, to uh, the law of sin and death that was in us, that was everything. He's already in this chapter said that this was the hope of an entire creation subjected by God fulfilled. So now even this commentary, Jameson Fawcett and Brown would say, this is being this glorified in Romans 8, 30, speaks of being brought to the final glory, intended, final glory, final glory. It's not one process in the glory, like we like to say it, from glory to glory to glory. That's not even scriptural. It's from the glory of the first to the glory that exceeds the second, Christ himself, the, the spirit, the natural gives way to the spiritual, and in the spiritual, the first is seen to not have glory at all, and that's the whole, that's the whole point. Uh, being made here. So, Jameson Fawcett and Brown goes on and says, this is a noble climax, how rhythmically expressed. And all of this is viewed as past in the past tense because starting from the present or the past decree of predestination of which other steps are but the successive unfoldings are all are beheld as one entire, eternally completed salvation. Now, I understand this commentary and those who wrote it does not actually believe that we have a one in a single entire complete salvation. They believe as they're trying to say here, twisting it in a little way of saying the other steps are the successful are the successive unfoldings of this predetermined thing. So they would say these are successive happenings, events, whatever, but they're not. 
but they had to say that these things are in past tense because they are, but there's a reason they're in past tense because Paul understands that these realities are past tense as to experience. They're present tense as to the ramifications of it, the sustaining effect of it, because you are secured and complete in Christ. But it's based upon that once and for all moment where your soul came to be called and then justified and glorified. At the same moment, those things took place and your soul came to be a partaker of an entire, eternally complete salvation. Not successive unfolding parts and pieces that God doles out fragmentarily. That's not true. God in himself, Christ through his work brought many sons unto glory. He has brought us to the rest, which the prophet declared in Isaiah, we'll read it, to be glorious. And actually in the Hebrew, it's his rest is declared to be glory. And that's in Isaiah 11, verse 10. In that day, the nations will resort or come to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, which is the, uh, it's actually the banner, um, the, uh, well, we just use the word signal or signet or, uh, I can't remember the actual word it's used in King James, but it's a banner, it's a flag under which a tribe would gather. And that flag had the had the symbol of that tribe of, and the net, you know, basically naming that tribe. They were identified as being under that banner. The banner over me is love. That's another pointing to it, but he becomes the ensign. That's the King James renders it ensign, which is that banner that identifies the tribe. They will come and stand around the root of Jesse and he will be the ensign. And that means they will come to him and find his rest and his resting place will be glorious. Now, again, in the, in the Hebrew, it's actually will be glory. When we come by the calling of God through his grace, by faith, we come to be found under the headship, under the banner, under the ensign, of this man that God chose for us to be found in from before the foundation of the world. And our soul comes to his resting place, the place of his complete work, which is glory. And that happens at the same moment we are justified because it is by being brought to that reality that we are justified because we're justified in him because he is the justification of all who believe. Now, to answer then, if God is for us, is to present the sufficient and complete work that he wrought and is perfectly and presently abiding in us as he has wrought a complete and sufficient work and he abides in us as a complete and sufficient work. This is his being for us. 
is working for us and in us a great salvation that has no flaw, no fault, no frailty whatsoever. Okay, that's him being forged. It's him overcoming the insufficiencies of men through the sufficiency of himself in men, living in us. Okay. Now, while we look at the beautiful truth that God is for us, we have to understand. Again, a fulfilled condition, seeing that he is for us. To understand that, we have to also realize this is not just merely a phrase that means he's on our side. Um, he fights for us in, our, in the midst of our battles. And when people come against us, and this is how these words, these verses that we've been reading, are many times interpreted, taught. And it gives people a temporary solace or restfulness or peace because they say, well, these things are coming against me, but God is for us and nothing can come against us. It's kind of the same way. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. So we immediately again, self, self-interpret. We read into these things, things that are not there. Him being for us, again, is not in that, not found in that temporal realm. I'm not saying God doesn't help us in natural situations. I know he does. He has me. I'm not saying God does not intervene in natural situations on our behalf. I'm not saying that at all. I believe he does wholeheartedly. But in this context, that's not what he's talking about. This means him being for us is that he's seeing our insufficiency, seeing the imprisonment of man to sin and death, seeing our weakness innately, and that we are married or were in Adam, married to a man of sin. We were in the flesh and incapable of rendering, therefore, any acceptable service unto God. In seeing such insufficiency, he did for us what we could not do. He won a war for us that was utterly impossible for us. <coughs> He gives to us by his grace what for us is entirely unattainable. That's him being for us. Remember, we have all of the weight. Excuse me, I'm having my allergies. All of the weight of our salvation rests solely and certainly and securely upon him. We're going to see why in a moment and point out the pillars. I call them the four pillars upon which salvation rests. The undergirding structure that holds it all up. <coughs> kind of in him, all things consist. There it is. It's held up and exists because of this structure that holds it. 
if you remember Paul saying in Galatians, who loved us, not I, Christ liveth in me. The life I now live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That statement is a big, big indicator of what it means for him to be for us. Loved us and gave himself for us. Why? Because man in his <clears throat> sinful state, in his previous state before new birth, <coughs> was incapable of rendering anything acceptable. So God in Christ had mercy. And that mercy wrought, that work performed, brings us to a condition in the boundaries of in Christ Jesus, brings us into a place where we have and can only boast in the eternal fact that our standing before the holy God is not I, but Christ. That will get into the uh, the part of this, or I say the fourth pillar of this, that he makes intercession for us. There's a here's a, another commentary, and he is I forget the commentary exactly. I think it may be John Gill, but he quotes a man by the last name of Newell, and. I'm not crazy about the wording here. He talks about fruit and we differ on that as far as what fruit is. I think fruit is Christ himself uh, living in us. Many people uh, think fruit is what we do and that is not true, but listen to what he says. He says, our weak hearts prone to legalism and unbelief receive these words. And that's if God be for us with great difficulty, God is for us. We have failed him. God is for us. We're ignorant, but he is for us. We have not yet brought forth fruit. That means any external proof that we are righteous, but he is for us. And I want you to recognize this. Again, that idea of fruit is not my idea of fruit, of course, but he's making a point here I want to stress. God being for us is not determined by us. God being for us is, is that he saw we could not do anything and he performed in us, for us, and now in us, what we could not. It's not him pulling for us to finally arrive where he wants us to be. It is his being for us, having entirely brought us to the goal to the reward at the very beginning of the journey for us him being for us that that phrase is god did not depend upon us for his own will to ever be completed but he imputed to us by his grace the completion of it in christ jesus so if he be for us setting that stage who is it that can be against us again 
people read these words and they self um, interpret. So they think who can be against us means any people, they even say situations, but let's just bring it down to people that they, they think it talks about pesky, troubling people who attempt to harm us, inflict ill toward us. And I'm not saying again, that God can intervene in situations, but that is not the context here. Again, read the letter, see what these people are facing as far as trying to be by Judaization brought under the legalistic, uh, dominion of law observers who say Jesus is not enough. Faith is not enough. This is not enough. Paul is telling them everything you have is what they were promised. You have it all. He's even going to go into chapter nine and say, you have everything that was pertaining to them, the adoption, the glory, everything. You have it in its totality. You have the purpose for which it existed as a testimony. My prayer is that they would be saved and come to receive it as well. And you, as those having received it, he'll go on and say in chapter 11, should be a, uh, uh, should be a something that invokes jealousy within them because you now stand as a judgment to their lack of faith because by faith you've received the thing they were intended for first as Jews. So we can't get in that. However, who can be against us? He's talking about those who would bring claim against these who by faith have received righteousness imputed chapter four of Romans. Those who by faith received righteousness imputed are now being accused by those who desire righteousness by works. And they are being told, you are not righteous. These are additions you have to uh, supplement your salvation by. So it deals with those who would come legalistically, religiously, and bring a charge against the believer by who, who by faith receive Christ and bring a charge against them concerning their standing before God, their relationship with God. Is it complete? Is it sufficient? Now, these are people that Paul has written to and says, the law of life has freed you from the law of sin and death and brought into your soul the righteousness of the law fulfilled. Is it or not? This is the accusation. It's not full. It's not complete. Just like the Galatians, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to have holy days added to this uh, regimen of, of uh, activity. So if you see it within the context of the next verse that we'll get to, you have to see it in the light of the condemnation that people would bring against us. That condemnation reverts back to the law. Judaizers are trying to condemn you because you have left the law and have received Christ by faith, righteousness by faith, and not by law. So God being for us has brought the soul by his power 
in accordance to his own mercy to a realm of eternal certainty. And God, by his own power, wrought a great deliverance for the soul, bound to sin and death. Therefore, Paul's point here is, in view of this sovereign work, this divine action on God's part, we're going to see God did all this. Who can have any authority or legal claim or right at all to bring us under subjection to their claims of condemnation or condemnability? Who has that right? Because God has superimposed himself upon the soul for absolute liberty in Christ. Free, justified, glorified. Final glory. See? The final glorification. <clears throat> we being found in Christ having nothing of our own and in there in having nothing of our own, having everything fully furnished to us in the son of his love. Who can bring a charge against that? Author S. Way, his translation of verse and we'll get back in just a moment, but who can be against us? Who can be, because here's the thing. It's not against us. You just heard me. We have nothing of our own. So there is nothing of us that can be pointed to as far, again, as far as our soul's condition in Christ, as far as salvation covenant, nothing of us, dictates it, determines it, takes away or adds to it. Therefore, no man can look at the soul's condition and condemn it or bring charge against it. They can, you know, they can, uh, as they do even today, they can suggest external efforts and tell you that those external efforts will deepen your relationship with God, will give you what faith and grace have not. Such a ludicrous thought. But they can say these things will furnish to you what Christ's presence has not furnished to you. Paul is saying that is absurd. They cannot say you're lacking something when he lives in you as completeness, fullness, when you are by the grace of God, a partic partaker of a completed work. So much so you're not only justified, you are consequently simultaneously glorified. And that is so because he's the one who cert certifies it in his own presence in the sight of God. And we're going to see that um, in these verses. However, <laughs> we are, we're already, we've already hit, uh, hit an hour. So we're going to stop here, but 
these are things we have to address because again, I want us to understand certainty of salvation, certainty of the soul's condition in Christ. Because you will believe if this context, if this reality is not the thing that for us determines our soul state, that it is God who has done this. It is God who is this in us. It is him who sustains it by his presence. Nothing of us determines this. If that's not basically the structure upon which we stand, singularly, the structure upon which we stand and our salvation rests, then we will, we will be swayed by the accusations of religious men. We will be condemned by man's accusations and opinions, even when the fact is in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Not an excuse for men to do what they, what they want, but it is a description of the man who alone determines the soul's salvation and state of being. So we will stop there. Um, we'll stop there tonight. Thanks guys for listening so much. Appreciate that. Again, remember the conference, let us know if we can help you. You can e uh, email us at CMIBRC, CMI Bible Research Center, BRC, um, at yahoo.com. And, uh, we'll, we'll get back with you on the email <clears throat> and, uh, like I said, we'd love to have you. If there's any way possible, you can be here uh, the 21st through the 25th. So again, guys, thanks for your patience in these classes. Thanks for listening. If there's any questions or comments, you can send to the same address. And I'd love to uh, have that conversation with you. So amen. <laughs>